Publishing for Profit podcast is brought to you by Ghostwriters and Co. Earn more money by publishing better content and learn how to increase your thought leadership so you can build your brand. Head over to ghostwritersandco.com for more information. That's ghostwritersandco.com. And now, your host, Joel Mark Harris. Our guest today is Annalise Larson, who comes from a background as an independent film producer with training at such prestigious institutions as the Canadian Film Centre and Banff Centre for the Arts. Since 1995, she has been working in the field of online digital marketing. She works extensively with government organizations and production companies in the film, television, and interactive media all across North America. Her focus is on helping content creators and storytellers use the power of online media and data to define, find, attract, and engage their audience and work towards a strategic and sustainable business model. She sat on the Interactive Fund Jury for BC Film and Media, the Experimental Stream Jury for the Canadian Media Fund, and has taught across the country on behalf of such organizations as Telefilm Canada, the Canadian Film Centre, Women in Film, and the National Screen Institute. She is also a highly sought-after speaker for media festivals and conferences. Annalise is a great wealth of knowledge. We talk about how to have a audience first approach to filmmaking. We talk about how to fund your films through uh, crowdfunding and uh, distribution. Um, It's a great conversation uh, for anyone who is looking at how to use marketing better. So without further ado, here is Annalise. Annalise, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Good. So you describe yourself as a digital marketer who has a niche of media. And that seems very unique to me because I don't actually know anyone who does quite what you do. So can you just explain what that is and what you do? Sure. Um, well, I, I come from a filmmaking background myself. That's sort of where I where I started a million lifetimes ago. And um, at the very beginning of the commercial internet, I was using it to do research for documentary projects. And then had a friend who worked at a web development company and said, hey, we need someone to do market research for us. Uh, do you know of anyone? And I said, oh, I could totally do that. So that's kind of how I tripped and fell into sort of the digital marketing stuff and um, uh, completely self-taught because when I started, it was like 94, 95, there were no courses or classes or anything that you could take. You just had to learn by doing and reading and researching. So um, that sort of started my journey and I was doing both uh, trying to be a filmmaker an independent filmmaker and producer, as well as um, basically using my income from digital marketing to feed my film habit and, um, and then became a mom and stopped uh, working in the film world and was just doing uh, digital marketing 
And then probably about 15, 13, 15 years ago, um, all of a sudden hit all these filmmaker friends who were going like, what the heck is YouTube? And do I need to be there? And, you know, help. So that's sort of the beginning of all my worlds coming back together and, um, uh, and, and, and now I work almost exclusively with people in media. I do do some other, I do other work in sort of other different culture sectors now as well. Um, but my goal, um, uh, you know, uh, was really to, to lean all in and, and work exclusively as much as possible, I guess, in culture, but specifically in, in media, um, just because I feel that there's such an opportunity uh, for, well, any kind of storyteller, not just filmmakers, to connect with audience through these digital mechanisms. And I believe strongly in the power of audience and how it can help creatives, you know, do all kinds of amazing, wonderful things. And before we always had to go through gatekeepers and now you don't have to. So I guess that's sort of, um, uh, you know, I, it, for me, it really is about just basically helping people understand who their audience is and really challenging perhaps conventional definitions of audience, which lean on um, gender and age ranges, which is actually completely useless when you're trying to craft a strategy. <laughs> um, it's based so much on an old media model of, um, you know, that sold television advertising or print advertising. And now we can know so much more about our audiences for for good and for evil, um, that, uh, you know, you really can um, look at your work and try to figure out what is it about these stories or, you know, the work that I'm doing that people are going to be interested in or what they're going to care about the most. And if I can tap into those things, which hopefully you do, hopefully there's emotional connection between your work and your audience. <clears throat> that I can go to the places where they're congregating about the, around these things that they love and, um, and, and basically have very audience led strategies. So that's kind of my approach in a nutshell and why I get excited about, about it for film and all different kinds of media stories. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so, I mean, you've been like in film for a long time and you've stuck with it unlike myself who's kind of dabbled in and out and have gone like an easy like quote easier path but what is it about film that keeps you it's not I know for a fact it's not an easy medium to to be in but obviously there's something about it that keeps you in the field so what is it about the film that that you love so much well, I think film is, you know, uniquely able to transport you away in sort of digestible pieces. <laughs> one and a half hours, two hours. What is the Zach and I one? Three or four hours. It's still, it's still a shorter thing. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's there's power in all different kinds of stories, whether it's in a book or if it's through audio or if it is sort of has episodes that roll out over time or, but there is something I think really special about um, a contained story in one film that gives you a glimpse <clears throat> into a world or an experience or a point of view that is quite 
immersive. And I think it allows people to connect very deeply often um, in ways that some other storytelling mediums don't necessarily do. And I think there is something unique about that sort of one and a half, two hour story that um, really allows a certain, it's a very specific kind of storytelling that takes you on a very specific kind of journey. And I think it triggers a unique emotional response. Hmm. And so you've been a proponent of using technology for storytelling, whether it's like, you know, even before web series were a thing, I know that you were a big fan of them and, and YouTube, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and now we are, you know, as even like the big film companies, they're forced to use uh, technology, they're for, forced to use streaming. And you, I know you've been talking about streaming and all these technologies, long before they were cool or before (laughs) they were, um, you know, really big, I suppose. So, you know, where do you see, do you see that we're going to go more towards using different mediums, different technologies, or are we going to, or I guess the big companies, are they going to go back to, you know, big theater releases or is, you know, streaming here to stay? Well, it's definitely here to stay. (laughs) I think there's no denying that. Um, I did this big research project this year as well uh, that was financed by Telefilm Canada. It's called Thanks COVID, 15 Lessons for Film Distribution from the First Wave. And um, so I did quite an interesting deep dive. I'm actually just putting together a proposal for a follow-up for this year to sort of figure out, um, you know, what does does the future look like? What do Mm -hmm. we see people going to? And I think um, the reason why people have been, or organizations, uh, production companies, broadcasters, film companies have been sort of forced to, um, you know, adopt uh, streaming as a way to get their movies and stuff out there is because that's where the audience is. So it's a big surprise. for me, it always, always is going to come back to audience. And I think one of the really interesting things about this past year is that we have all, um, you know, like it takes like 30 days to make new habits. Well, we've had a year of having to be online. And I know that there's also, you know, a, a hunger to get back into the real world to be able to connect with people to hug. I want to hug. I miss <laughs> hugs so much. Yeah, me um, too. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's definitely that kind of drive. So I think, you know, once we're all vaccinated and we have some kind of normal that we can get back to, there's definitely, I think will be a spike in real world things, whether it's mm-hmm. going to the movie theater or to see, you know, um, a band play in a pub or whatever it is, you know, like we're going to want to be in physical spaces together. But I think we have sort of irrevocably changed our brains and um, have learned for all the people that were resisting, you know, like, oh, this is too hard or this isn't going to be the same. And, and um, all of a sudden realize that it actually isn't very hard. And 
So the adoption of streaming has just been massive and um, the time and attention of the audience has definitely been put on, you know, is online a lot. And I think, you know, I live now, I used to live in Vancouver, but I live in a smaller center now. So now, you know, I can get access to movies anywhere, right? I can, I can attend film festivals in Berlin or uh, in Banff and still be in Saskatoon, you know? So I think, um, we're going to come to, there'll be some kind of hybrid. And I think one of the things that's been interesting is a lot of the bigger theater chains have really struggled during COVID because they're so tied into the Hollywood model. And a lot of those big Hollywood tentpole movies, not all of them, but many of them had, have pushed their release dates and pushed their release dates. And it you know, like there was what that theater, there was two theater chains in the UK that basically shut down because James Bond wasn't going to come to the theaters. They were putting uh, it off to 2022. Mm -hmm. So they shut down all these theaters for, I don't know if they've reopened now, but they certainly were shut down for a good six to eight months. And, um, but it's the little independent theaters that have actually been able to be more nimble and there've been more opportunities for um, smaller films. Now, smaller film is under $10 million budget, which still seems like a hell of a lot of money to me. I think micro budget in the States is like under 25 million. I mean, that's almost our entire national budget for <laughs> funding for films here in Canada every year. So um, our micro budgets are really micro. But I think if you're, you know, with the lower costs and um, with the theaters being able to, like they were showing sort of old catalog, like classic movies and the new films from, from you know, independent um, filmmakers were able to stay in the theaters longer. So they got more word of mouth. So it almost goes back to like an older model where... <laughs> Films used to stay in the theaters longer and there was even drive-ins, right? Because drive-ins were safe. So it's like this weird sort of 50s flashback in terms of uh, a true theatrical. But then there's all these things called virtual cinema where there was partnership with these smaller theaters. It was technically online, but it was exclusive to these, to your local, you know, your local movie house. And you would would there would still be a revenue share with the theater it was trying to help these theaters survive the pandemic i, I think you know there was, we don't really know yet what the true cost has been in terms of that exhibition space i suspect that there are going to be a number that have gone out of business and won't be able to come back so i think it's going to take us a while to find that new equilibrium so i think the more and you know and we just have no patience like if it's too hard to seed something or get what we want when we learn about it then we just we you know we, we have so many choices as people in an audience we just go on to the next great thing so i think in this new age, the audience is the most powerful. The only thing that's in scarcity is the time and attention that we each individually have, our free time <laughs> that we spend each day. And how do we spend it? Are we going to watch TV? Are we going to play a video game? We're going to read a book. Um, are we going to watch a movie? And um, that's the only thing in scarcity. So it's the audience that are the true gatekeepers. And we are really powerful. And I think COVID has... Um, you know, laid a lot of truths bare, and that's one of them. So I think that, yeah, streaming is not going to go away at all. And I think I could expect there will be more momentum actually around it, just trying to meet people where they are and trying to make it as easy as, as possible, because they truly, 
you know, do have, um, you know, the most power and probably like, especially in the big theater chains, we're probably going to see it's going to be mostly sort of big special event, Hollywood, big tentpole pictures that get put in the theaters for the most part, because they're the ones that will come out to see, you know, hopefully it's more than just, I love superhero movies, but hopefully it's more than just superhero and sci-fi, but you know, that's a lot of what, that's a lot of what it is. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it seems to me that the, as it stands now with the streaming model, it's not sustainable for the big Hollywood movies that spend a hundred million dollars on a film, right? Like James Bond or superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, so does that leave an opportunity for smaller Canadian films, um, people who don't have Hollywood backing to actually reach audiences through streaming? hundred percent. And I think it doesn't actually matter when you're talking about um, a smaller film, whatever that means. Um, you know, I think it, I think there's a lot of opportunity because in some ways it doesn't matter. Like a lot of those platforms aren't actually going to do a lot of marketing. Like Netflix totally clawed back its marketing budget. It's, Mm. it doesn't really do outside marketing beyond its platform um, except for a few rare cases. And those are usually the bigger budget ones. And maybe they're even going to drop them into a few theaters so that they can qualify for, you know, Oscars play that stupid game because thanks Steven Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) love his movies but he's really become this old man yelling at the clouds (laughs) which is like buddy that's just the reality you gotta move you gotta move on um so yeah I think it doesn't necessarily matter where your film lives it's still to some extent up to the filmmaker to bring that audience to wherever that film is and hopefully it's in an accessible place, you know, for most people, but, you know, there's so many different streaming services now that we're getting kind of siloed by the ones that I subscribe, you know, which ones I subscribe to. I may subscribe to ones that are very different than the ones that you're subscribing to. So I think, you know, we don't, aren't, we're really moving away from that kind of monoculture that we had, a mass culture of the past to all of this, these very specialized sort of boutique cultures, again, for good and for evil. Um, and, uh, so I think, you know, there, there's a chance for filmmakers who especially can have a big picture view of their work, that it's not just about the current movie, but like, how does this fit into my body of work? What do I need to do with this film that I'm working on so that I can make things easier for myself with the next film that I want to make? And I think the more people that can adopt that bigger picture, Um, approach and really get strategic about it with, you know, with using that understanding and an understanding of what are the audiences that you need to attract to your work this time so that hopefully they'll follow you next time. And it becomes an asset, right? It becomes something that is of value to, um, you know, like you can, I mean, that's what a lot of casting decisions are made. I mean, heck, that's what our star system the Hollywood star system is based on is that people, you cast these actors that come with a built-in audience and, you know, even on small things, there's lots of wonderful talented actors out there. And usually, you know, if you've got a choice of like two or three people and you can see that someone is really active online and has a really engaged following, well, it would make sense to cast that person (laughs) because they're going to bring an audience to your work. 
So it's the same thing. Like I think filmmakers, writers, people that maybe aren't as comfortable being visible in and around their work have to kind of bite the bullet and find ways to get comfortable because the more you can develop that audience and the more comfortable you can get. And it doesn't have to be in a sleazy sort of used car salesman kind of way. Um, you know, some filmmakers, well, I'm, an, I'm an artist. <laughs> I just want to make my art. And sure, you can do that, but then you're probably going to make one movie and never make another one. If you can say like, I am like, I have something of value. Here are these amazing stories that I want to tell. I'm making opportunities for my creative community because it's a collaborative art. I'm making, I'm adding value to people's lives because I'm telling these kinds of stories that haven't been told before. Um, like embrace the value that you bring as a storyteller and, and hopefully, um, you know, frame it in a way that, that, you know, the audience is going to be happy that you showed up and the trick is to just try to find those ways and how do you extend that value beyond the linear story of your film like I love transmedia storytelling I love it and it brings me no end of joy if I stumble across something or if you know someone puts like a a URL or a, a social media account in a film or in a television show and then you go and it's real and they're they're using it and I just it just delights me. I just love that stuff. And I think there's, you know, not every story, that's not the way to go, but, um, you know, there are a whole bunch of ways that you can extend the story, the story world that you're creating beyond just the linear world of your film, the linear story of your film. And, you know, good marketing is just another kind of storytelling really. Mm. So, I mean, that's a superpower. Lots of people can learn marketing. Like it's not rocket science it's work but it's a lot harder if you don't have the creativity if you don't have an instinct for narrative and characters um you know it's a lot harder to learn those skills and maybe impossible for some people so i always say if you're already a good storyteller you're so far ahead of um every marketer is trying to learn how to tell the story of a brand right now so <laughs> do it for yourself You've, you've spoken a lot about audience and obviously very passionate about it. When should a filmmaker start thinking about who their target audience is and should they niche down as far as they can go to reach that audience? I always answer that question with today. There's always stuff that you can do. I've gone away of talking about niche because people, a lot of people seem to be allergic to the word niche. They figure that that means that I am this specialized, small filmmaker with small stories. So I think I talk about specificity a lot. Mm -hmm. I think the more specific that you can get with your audience, and sometimes that does involve segmenting it down, like going through this process of audience segmentation. So one sort of fictional example I use in my teaching work a lot is say like a, a dark Victorian retelling of Snow White. So one, I always try to find like three kind of basic audiences to start when I'm building a strategy. So obviously because of the Victorian setting, steampunk fans, cosplayers are a natural fit for that. And you would start out sort of speculative fiction, you cut that down to people that love steampunk and you would, and then like, who are the most 
eager in those, well, the cosplayers, the people that, you know, spend a bunch of money and invest their time and creativity and creating costuming that is of the steampunk world. And then, you know, like even like who are, where in where those communities are, like who are the people, who are the influencers within those communities? So you almost want to get it down to like specific people and through the power of that specificity, you create an emotional connection between your work and those individuals who then get so excited because it, they can just see that this is like, this is for me, this is my jam. And I'm going to add value to my audience, my community by sharing this with them. I won't be able to stop myself because I'm going to be so excited about it. And so then, then you start to work your way back out and up that funnel again, right? Because the, you share and share and share and share and you go out, but you have to start with it as specific as you possibly can get so that um, you can sort of start that, uh, you know, that domino effect of reaching uh, a wider, a wider range. And I think if you can get that specific, it just makes like the, the strategies kind of write themselves, you know, because you can, you're talking to a person. I figured out what Joel's really going to love about the story. And I'm going to sort of basically pitch it to you, or I'm going to invite you into a really cool experience. And all of this stuff um, in terms of like starting today, doesn't mean that you're, you're showing up today and going, Hey, I'm, a, I make movies and I'm awesome. And I've got this crowdfunding campaign and you should watch my trailer. That's not how you start. You start with what I call lurking and learning. So once you sort of identify these audiences, then you go figure out where are they? Maybe it's on a subreddit or there's like a steampunk forum at brassgoggles.co.uk or there's, you know, like there's, and you go and you spend time, you spend time and you, you don't, you shut up. <laughs> You don't say anything for a while. You you get a sense of what that community is like, how active it is, um, what gets them excited. And when you start to contribute, it, you're adding value that isn't necessarily about your work. So it is like a long game. Mm -hmm. That's why you can start today. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you know, and then eventually then, you know, and I think with films too, that maybe not necessarily doing like a whole bunch of social media profiles for one movie. You need to do it for yourself or your production company, because that is the thing that's going to have longevity through your work, not one film, because mm. there's so many abandoned social media accounts for films, you know, that happened three years ago. And if I've got to start all of that over again for my next project, that's a lot of work. It's different with like a series because you've got seasons, hopefully, and episodes that are rolling out over time. So then I think in that instance, it often makes sense to start up you know, like a social media ecosystem for that project. But for a single movie, I really sort of encourage people, especially if you're not backed by Disney, I mean, even Disney doesn't do that really. Like even if they've got like for their publicity camp campaign, you know, inevitably that redirects to their, just to the Disney website. Like if you, you know, Google things, that's usually where it ends up later. So, I mean, even they understand the value of having that bigger, bigger brand and they don't want to take care of all these little orphan social media accounts. We don't either. We don't have time <laughs> to do that. But it sounds like it's more, you need to focus more on your personal brand rather than uh, a brand of a like one particular property. Yeah, well, I often, I often tell people, like I said, I don't actually care about your movie. <laughs> 
but I care so much about you and I care about your voice and I care about helping support that and getting it out to the world. That movie is just one part of that, right? Like it's just one part of your creative brand or whatever it is. And um, like, I think like it's, it's different if you are getting into television, because it's just, it's bigger, it's longer, it's more long-term. I've been working on this one show for almost 10 years and um, it's, you know, we've got lots of stuff <laughs> to keep on sharing and keeping the conversation going because we've got like six seasons of the show and um, all the, all the additional stuff that we did to extend the story into the digital world. So it makes sense. Like, that show is bigger than all the individuals. But I think especially if you're just starting out or you know, you're early in your career for sure, um, it's worthwhile to invest in yourself and um, figure out what are the kinds of stories that you're wanting to, what are the, what are the through lines? Usually writers have a whole bunch of scripts they've worked on and there's, there's way more scripts out there than go into actual production. Like the percentage is shockingly small. So like, what is it about those stories? What about, what are you attracted to in those stories? What are the things that other people are going to care about? And it isn't something like, well, I really love women driven stories, or I love coming of age stories. Like if you think about it, like, are there online communities that are about coming of age stories? Not really, <laughs> not really. You know, but if you have a character that is looking at it through a particular cultural lens, there are certainly communities around specific cultures. There's a ton of steampunk communities. I always say, like, look for three things, influencers, communities, and conversations online. And if you can find those three things in this potential audience, then you probably are, are onto something. Hmm. And hopefully so people that you want to spend some time with, because if you do your job right, you're going to spend time with them for a long time. And hopefully you're interested in that subject as well as not yes. just a marketing gimmick. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you want to focus on personal branding, but you don't want to, let's take the steampunk example, mm -hmm. but like if your movie is, your first movie is about steampunk, how do you, but you want to do, let's say like a historical, um, I don't know, genre of some sort. Um, can you, easily make that jump between steampunk and uh, like historical fiction. Um, I, with well, I, I, I don't brand. think anything is, I don't think anything is easy. <laughs> it always takes work, but I think you need to think really strategically about you can be creative and write about a whole bunch of different things. So maybe say your, your goal is a zombie movie. You actually, so you start in something, but you want to do a zombie movie. You love zombie movies. You watch and read everything you can get about zombies. Zombies are your jam, but you've got the steampunk thing that got funded. So how do you get there? So you need to sort of think like incremental things along the way so that you can bring people with you like a historical fiction is pr it's probably pretty close like i mean because mm. the, the a lot of the thing about um the steampunk stuff is sort of the victorian aesthetic right so you could just True. really lean yeah. in on that and emphasize those kinds of things and get people really excited maybe you're a real <clears throat> you know history nerd and so 
right now you're focusing on this Victorian setting and time. And so you can really geek out in, in terms of the, the way that you extend the story online would be providing all this, you know, geeky, wonderful information that you came across as you were doing your research for your writing. Um, and so then the next time period is uh, like, I don't know, Edwardian England, or maybe it is, you know, Eight, you know, San Francisco in the 1800s or whatever it is, but at least it, it, like, I think there's enough, like you just have to think about what, like what are the through lines that you can emphasize on this film, this story that will make it easier for people to understand why they're gonna wanna follow you for the next project. Cause they go, oh yeah, like this guy, he's a history nerd and I got all, I, I'm a history nerd. And yeah, like my really love steampunk but I also really love, you know sort of all the little minutia um, about history and alternative technology or whatever it is. So I think there's, there's ways. And if the next one was like a sci-fi thing then you would maybe emphasize more the sci-fi elements, right? Cause steampunk is actually like a sci-fi. It's like, you know, H.G. Wells kind of um, technology, but it is that sci-fi. So you would lean into that if you knew that, you know, a sci-fi film was the thing you were doing next. So I think you just have to, and if, and if it is like that removed, if it's zombies, then maybe you want to find other projects to do first <laughs> to help people get there. <laughs> Connecting the dots, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. Is, um, so if you if you decide to do uh, crowdfunding, mm -hmm. is is it basically the same sort of strategy as finding the audience, connecting with them, and more of like a long term uh, strategy of bringing them along for the ride? Yeah, I think definitely. I think you know crowdfunding is really more about the crowd than the funding, and it, the people that already know and love you. It gives them something that they can do for you, even if it's not contributing money it could be just sharing your campaign out right to their mm -hmm. audiences because they yeah. love and support you but it also gives you like there's a narrative to a crowdfunding campaign again it becomes a bit of a story it is a bit of a creative exercise how can you find something a new way basically every day to ask people for money how can you do that in a way that doesn't that you don't like just get exhausted thinking about doing that. So, but if you can find like a narrative and a story and some like little special events, you can pepper it with, um, you know, it, that allows you to bring new audience to you. Like I think um, like Arthur Slade, who is uh, a YA writer. I actually know, yeah, I, know, yeah. I know Arthur quite well. Yeah, yeah, he's a lovely guy. Yeah. And he did a crowdfunding campaign because he wanted to do these graphic novels of, um, I think it was his Hunchback series. Mm. And... Um, and, and, and he was, so he was, because he was making these beautiful, like really high quality, beautiful books um, of, of the graphic novels that were bound and all that kind of stuff. And so people like even on the platform, I think he did it on Kickstarter, um, you know, it just triggered the people that love that kind of stuff, like love graphic novels, even if they weren't necessarily familiar with his work. And so that was an introduction. It was a way to introduce his work to new audiences that then would follow. Oh, well, he's also done all these other things. And so I think it, it is, a, it is an audience development tactic more than it is um, a, a fundraising strategy. Uh, Cause it's a hell of a lot of work to do it right. It's a lot of work. 
And um, I think for film specifically, one of the best platforms to use is Seed and Spark out of the States because it is, it, I mean, they've, they've broadened sort of what, um, what kind of projects are allowed to crowdfund, but it was a platform that was designed for filmmakers by filmmakers mm-hmm. and they have a wildly high success rate. Like it's between 85 and 95, 90% of people that are, you know, that raise the money that they set out to raise and they often will do it repeatedly. So I might re- do it for development, production, post-production, and then, you know, film festivals or distribution. So some people go back over and over again and they really do a good job of supporting their community and with educational resources and all that kind of stuff. So. So I was going to ask if uh, crowdfunding was still a good tactic to raise funds but obviously it is so Mm -hmm. what are like how should people think about uh crowdfunding is it just you know obviously you need to post on social media but what else can people do to have a successful crowdfunding campaign i have never heard anyone say oh i planned too much darn it (laughs) you need to plan (laughs) so um sort of I've, I've echoed and, and taken and, and riffed a bit on the structure that Seed and Spark do, but they basically, six months of planning where you plan out every single week, like all the things that you need to do, the assets that you need to create so that when you launch a four-week campaign and you've planned out what you're doing every single day and you have to be responsive. So every time someone... Uh, contributes money, you need to thank them on social. Um, Like I said, there needs to be a narrative to that because it becomes really painful to ask for money every day. And um, there were these two filmmakers that they're documentarians. They do these crazy travel shows. The first one was floating down the Ganges river on a inflatable raft. Um, And that sounds like a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) They lost a lot of weight. Um, (laughs) And then their second one um, was they, you know, the tuk-tuks, the little the little taxis like from Thailand and mm. Asia. Oh, yeah. they, dr- they got their own tuk-tuk and they drove it down South America from the tippy top all the way down to the bottom. And, uh, you know, hilarity ensued. <laughs> I bet. And because they were in a tuk-tuk, they, they figured that they, they were structuring it so that they... Um, uh, would would pick up people like they would pick up people they would work it like a taxi they would take you know basically hitchhikers and things so they had many colorful characters along the way but they had a really I mean they they had I mean obviously they had a good sense of humor and so like their um, rewards for their campaign all resonated with sort of the story that they were telling in the project so for instance they like one of the things you could <laughs> contribute for at at a higher level was um you know part halfway along the way you could basically well before it was zoom so it would have been skype in and give them a couple's therapy not that they're a couple but they figured that at that point they really need some outside perspective and help that's actually really hilarious (laughs) so so their tone like the tone of and the and the pitch video is really important right especially if you're making you know, trying to raise money for a film, your pitch video is basically your audition to demonstrate that you can tell 
that kind of story, that you're good at that kind of storytelling. And so many people just talk <laughs> and have crappy audio. So to have it visually be very interesting, convey what you need to convey. Um, and it should only be like 90 seconds, two minutes tops because people really stop watching after 90 seconds so you have to convey all the important things like why is this project important why is this the team to do it and then to create a sense of urgency like why now otherwise people aren't going to contribute money you know you need to be able to convey that to them like like it's going to happen why often I think like the all or nothing is a better way to go because that inherently gives you a sense of urgency like basically if we don't raise this money it's not happening. Um, whereas if it's, we'll take what we can get and see what we can do often. I think that's when people run into trouble because then they don't have enough money to do the thing that they promised people they're going to do. And then it takes them years and their backers get really mad. And, you know, so I think there's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, good things to do, but I think really just treat it as another creative act. Um, exercise with an understanding of, of the audience that you're trying to engage. Hmm. What advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out in film and want, wants to be a filmmaker? Volunteer on other people's sets, you know, like just try it and, uh, you know, there's always, uh, always other emerging filmmakers that are trying, uh, you know, to, to do their own thing too. And, and they're looking for people who work for free. So I think, you know, more than going to film school, it's good to just like really roll up your sleeves and, um, you know, work on other people's projects as much as possible. Could be in the production office, could be in on set, could be, you know, logging footage for the editor, whatever, whatever it is. I think that that's, that's the place that everyone really starts. That's where I started. Um, and uh, it's, well, I mean, I, I learn best by doing and, and I mean, it's my whole digital marketing career. <laughs> I mean, I am completely self-taught and I continue to learn every day. Like went on to Google, had a client, needed to set up Google Analytics for the first time. Apparently the old way of doing Google Analytics is no longer an option if you have something brand new. So I've had to learn a whole new thing. So, um, you know, just, and, and be humble, be humble. Don't, you know, just be willing to, to take, be a sponge and take it all in and, 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 you know, obviously you don't want to be abused. Um, hopefully they're treating you well, but uh, you know, be helpful and, and learn, learn by mm. doing. And, and it, at very least, I mean, God, I mean, that's the thing I find too, is I'm teaching more and more young people, like people have grown up being makers. Like I don't know of a teenager or, you know, person in their twenties, early twenties that ha hasn't had a YouTube channel, you know, they've at least tried it. They've at least put, I mean, maybe they were terrible, but you know, you can, you can do a lot with your camera and, or with your phone and um, some editing software mm -hmm. and just sort of play around. So I think that's another thing that you can do. And sometimes people find they have an affinity for a certain kind of thing. And obviously on YouTube, it's a different kind of storytelling. <laughs> There's a sort of cinema verite kind of thing that happens on YouTube or Twitch um, or TikTok. I mean, mm -hmm. I've been really enjoying watching some, some little interesting uh, storytellers on TikTok. So I mean, who knows? Is TikTok a useful channel for, for filmmakers? 
I think it can be. I think it can be useful for anyone. I think especially there's something there for everyone. And what's been amazing to me with TikTok is how scarily smart the algorithm is. So mm. I resisted it for the first few years. And I looked at my 19 year olds, you know, going through TikTok. And, oh my God, that just looks like hellscape. Like I would not want to be there. Like this is painful to watch. And then I had an older friend who said he'd used it for an old town. Um, and an augmented reality game and had really great success on TikTok. I said, okay, Steve, I'll give it a try. So I went on and I tried it and it like, so my TikTok is not my daughter's TikTok. My TikTok is filled for some reason with all things Celtic. I grew up in Nova Scotia, so I have that affinity. I seem to, so that, um, birds, which is another thing I love woodworking, which I did love, but I didn't know that I would love seeing, you know, the perfect <laughs> dove joint being yeah. put together. Um, you know, native TikTok is huge. Oh. And uh, there's a certain indigenous sense of humor that I really love um, that I think comes from the adversity and the oppression of the last, you know, several hundred years. So um, yeah, so I think there's just, there's, I think there's something there for everyone. Um, and you just sort of have to, would have to find your way. Cause I think that it, there's, I mean, look, what was the whole sea shanty thing that happened right before, before Christmas what is really that? took off? Well, there was this, so sea shanties really took, took off, right. Cause it really started as a music and dance yeah. kind of platform. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and there's this whole sort of culture on TikTok that someone would sing a song like okay. a minute of a song, and then people will layer stuff on top of it. They'll do, so they'll duet with that person. And sometimes, you know, there can be multiple, multiple layers of sound oh. and singing. Mm -hmm. And sea shanties really took off last year on TikTok. Stephen Colbert mentioned them on, on his <laughs> show. So that got it even more, it blew it all up. And there's, it, it's really this one song, the Wellerman that really took okay. off on TikTok and everyone's doing a bloody version of it. But the young Scottish guy who started it, he was a, like a postman. He was a postal worker, but he was a musician, but he was, you know, doing, he was delivering mail to, to feed his music habit. And now he's got like this big record deal and they did all these remixes and oh. it's, it was just amazing amazing hmm. so i yeah i think you know it, it it may not be for everyone but i think there's a lot of a lot of opportunity it definitely would be worth an exploration yeah i mean it, filmmakers may not like the word niche but it, it, this it just comes to my mind is that with you're describing like woodworking and sea shanties like there's you know a lot of opportunity just to niche down to what you particularly love and to explore mm -hmm. that with people who have similar um, tastes. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> have you tried Clubhouse? I've been resisting. I have it on my phone now and I have an invitation. I have not ventured in. It's like, I get this feeling of exhaustion. Mm. It's another thing. Yeah. So Snapchat, I managed to avoid, <laughs> even though I know it's still around, but it's not as vital as it was before. I suppose if I got a project that it was vital for, I would go on to Snapchat. TikTok, I resisted for a very long time. So Clubhouse, I'm right. I'm just, I'm just at the, about at the tipping point because <laughs> I've, I've got the app. I've got the invite. I just have to jump on in. Just jump but, on in. 
Yeah, yeah but it, it does the thought of it exhausts me. <laughs> so I, mean, I think that brings up a good point of how do you manage all these different accounts and how do you know where to go and, and what to post? Guess what it has to do with what audience you're trying to engage. <laughs> depends what it is. I also sit on a lot of funding juries. So my least favorite thing is when, you know, you're inevitably asked, you know, what is your marketing strategy? What's your digital strategy for this project? Who's your audience? And if someone says my project is for everyone 18 to 34, and my strategy is a website, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, like 80% of funding applications, that is the extent of what their strategy is. They may, you know, flesh it out a little bit, but there's no real justification for what that is. And as I've already told you, um, you know, I think that gender and age ranges are an absolutely terrible place to start when defining your audience. You may find that a certain audience does skew to a certain age or skew to a certain gender once you've sort of, you know, done that segmentation process, but you don't start there. So it's, it, it, I think I just like, you just really have to understand that maybe for this project, like I, uh, there was a, a, a rom-com that had uh, prof- like pro wrestling was a part of it. Like the, the female character, the love interest was a professional wrestler. And they had all these retired wrestlers from the WWE who were in the cast. And when I started doing research for them to try and figure out like, where, where are the platforms that you, what are Reddit was huge, like blew everything else out of the water. And um, so I said to them, I think what you have here is this is a, a Reddit Twitter strategy because people like to live tweet the matches. So at that point, that's, So you need, you should be there. You should be there Mm -hmm. part of the conversation. And there was all these really passionate conversations at that time happening on Reddit, specifically around women uh, of the WWE who weren't getting as much prime time screen time as their male counterparts. And so they were like these really (laughs) emotional um, conversations that were happening that, um, you know, they could like anytime people are getting emotional, you need to pay attention to that. And so for them, then it would be a Reddit Twitter strategy would have been my recommendation. For someone else, it might be a Pinterest TikTok strategy. You know, like it just, it just depends. Mm -hmm. It just depends. Really depends on where the, where the audience is. So you have your own podcast called Story and Audience. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yeah, it's it's story plus audience, and um, it's on all the major podcasting platforms. <laughs> it is uh, with my friend Jill Golick, who is a screenwriter and who um, used to be the president of the Writers Guild for a number of years. And um, we like whenever we got together. She lives in Toronto, and whenever we got together, we'd have these fantastic conversations. And her approach to writing, in some ways, and I think it's quite a common approach. You know, you're doing all this research, you're trying to figure out, you know, who your characters are, and you're doing all this stuff. And um, she'd had some success with a web series called Ruby Sky, which is basically kind of like, um, uh, you know, a, a young girl detective, mm. uh, you know, solving, you know. PG mysteries. And um, 
so uh so we said you know we should really like we should capture these conversations somehow so we came up with this idea for the podcast before covid <laughs> and we planned it all out and so uh the first season which came out last spring um was a series of conversations between the two of us basically walking through both of our processes and the approach to our work like the same kind of, and what the lovely thing that we realized was the same kind of research that she was doing as a writer was actually very similar to the kind of research that i was doing as a digital strategist because <laughs> Um, often, you know, a real key to understanding what audiences you should be trying to target initially are who who's in it, right? Because we're humans, we like to connect with other humans. And so whether it's a documentary or a scripted thing, you know, the characters represent potential audiences who would be interested in it. So a lot of the research that she would do for her characters was very, very, very similar to the kinds of um, things that I would do. And so as a walking through her process as a writer, it was definitely targeted more at writers and why um, it was really important to kind of start packaging your story with audience and bake that in right from the beginning. It allows you as a writer to better protect your work because you can demonstrate that that this is an audience, there's an audience for this story, you understand them, you know what they're going to like, and therefore, you know, you can't hammer this story, this, you know, say gothic horror story into some kind of pulpy, banal thing that no one's really going to like, it's going to end up being a terrible movie, the horror fans won't like it. Um, and um, the general public won't like it, because it's not like, it's just not interesting enough. So I think really, um, you know, having that approach and as a writer, bringing an understanding of audience, not writing to a market, because some people also get really uncomfortable doing that. Like, I'm just doing this, like, I'm just doing this horror movie because I know that it's really cheap and easy to make and get money for it. Like, you should not be writing that story. <laughs> don't, <laughs> just don't. Um but if you love horror, like Karen Lamb is a brilliant example, filmmaker um, from Vancouver who specializes in horror. Uh, and she's like a horror goth fan. And um, so she is, she is, she is her audience. <laughs> but the, the Story Plus Audience podcast is really about um, walking through sort of my process and Jill's writer's process and understanding how they can really help support each other and make, make this chance of success much, 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 much greater for your project, for attracting awesome. money, for all kinds of things. Cool. I'm going to, I think that's a great place to leave off, but I'm going to ask you one more question. And this is something I ask all my guests. And that is, do you have a favorite book or one that you like to gift a lot? Hmm. It's a terrible question. I know it is a million books and at different times in my life, I've had different favorite books. So Winnie the Pooh, (laughs) the Narnia series, uh, Byron Katie's loving what is, which is a great book about sort of Buddhist light, just letting sometimes letting stuff go sometimes. Um, I also love this. I've just read last fall, uh, started, um, Eden Robinson's trickster 
series, which, okay. you know, the first book had been turned into a show on, on CBC and then all hell broke loose and it's not going to be finished, but the, the books are really, really good. She's an amazing indigenous uh, woman author here in Canada. Um, yeah. Like I just, I, I, I love books. I read all the time. So it's hard to know right now. I've been reading a whole bunch of mysteries set mm. in France because I did this oh. virtual France thing for my birthday. And nice. I was just reading a lot of, of books set in the French countryside. It was lovely. What about, <laughs> what's a book that a filmmaker could read to help with their career? Um, it's an older book, but it's a really good one. And you can actually get access to it, I believe, still for free. It's done by the Film Cooperative out of in the U.S. And it's called Selling Your Film Without Selling Your Soul. I love it. And, and um, basically, there's echoes of uh, the kinds of things that uh, I've found that really resonate and where people have found success. And people could only contribute um, to this, um, this book if they shared all of their, their information about what their challenges had been and what the results were, uh, what deals they were able to make. Sometimes they couldn't share all the details because of you know, the distributor wouldn't want people to know. And as a, there's another um, sort of little more recent example, it's not a book, it's a web series. Um, it was based on basically, before, obviously before COVID, this filmmaker from the States had done a, uh, was a romantic comedy about um, a woman who was running a church Um and she was a vampire, but like a real, a real vampire, not a sparkly one, like, you know, because they're people who identify as vampires. And her church was getting audited by the IRS. And it's a love story between the IRS auditor and I guess the vampire priestess. So, and it's a romantic comedy. And so she and her partner ended up renting a motorhome and doing this thing that they called the Joyful Vampire Tour, where they basically did these special event screenings all over the US. And they did a web series that went with it. So you go to YouTube and you search for Joyful Vampire Tour. There's a web series where she shares she shares all of the numbers in their self-distribution and as they went along and people were going, Oh, this is really painful to watch. Could you just go get a distributor please? And then all these other filmmakers were going, no, 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 don't do that. It's much worse. And so then they started sharing their experience. So in terms of like an understanding of how, um, what a, the life of an independent film could be, I think both of those, um, sources of information can be quite interesting. Hmm. I know what I'm going to do right after this interview. I'm going to Google that. And <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that sounds super cool. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> Annalise, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your expertise today. For people who want to reach out to you, where's the best uh, place they can find you? Well, I have two websites. One is veria.ca, V-E-R-I-A.ca, which is sort of my consulting business. And then I do a lot of teaching and mentorship. So that website is storypreneursunite.com. And on there, there's a bunch of resources and a very um, inexpensive course that I also launched um, in the last six months that basically walks you through all the steps to create your own digital strategy. So 
Awesome. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. If people want to check that out. Thank you. And thank you, Joel. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Publishing for Profit. Please like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.